0: Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, we're in Isaiah chapter 5 through 6 today. Most scholars, when they start going through the book of Isaiah, they consider Isaiah 1 through 5 as kind of the introduction to the book. A lot of the same themes keep coming up. It's essentially God saying to his people, you have got an issue and I'm going to take action on this issue. But what I want to do today, it makes sense because as soon as you get into six, you've got the Isaiah uh, throne room call, and then seven uh, forward, you start getting into uh, specifics about the kings and the political climate. But what I want to do today is I want to group five and six today together because five is a song or a parable about the fruit that Judah is producing, and if you remember from the previous weeks, we talked about the point in history right now where Israel is split in half. You've got Israel in the north, you've got Judah in the south, they've got two separate kings. It's almost like the Civil War took place and then uh, the north and south just split. They're no longer uh, a nation united, they're divided. And uh, uh, Isaiah is prophesying in the south to Judah and what he's saying in five is that the Lord has expect, inspected the fruit that they've been producing and it's rotten. And then Isaiah six, is how God is gonna deal with those people. And it involves a prophet and speaking some pretty harsh words. So I wanna group those together because I think that the um, the two ideas go together even though historically five has been kind of lumped in with one through uh, the, the first five chapters. Um, but I have, I have a purpose for where we're going today. So uh, let's dig into our Bibles. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. We're going to Isaiah chapter five. Read the first seven verses around here. Um, we read a little bit, then pause and talk a little bit. That will be um, emphasized today because of the way that five is structured. I'll read a lot less and then talk and then read a little more and then talk. So let's start with Isaiah five, one through seven. I'll put up on the screen for those of you who would like to follow along um, up here. But I encourage you, um, bring your own Bibles because then you can start marking in it and writing in it. And the goal is not just to listen to me talk about this. The goal is for me to wet your appetite so that you go and you start devouring this on your own when you go home. If the only time you're hearing the word is when I'm saying it, there's a big problem in your life, okay? That's me loving you. Okay, Isaiah 5. Chapter one, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. See, my beloved had a vineyard and it was on a very fertile hill and he, and he dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines and he built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes." Now, that word wild in Hebrew is the Hebrew word ba'ush. And it doesn't just mean wild like, like you go out in your yard and, you, and you've got like grapes and you've got these wild things that are going up in your backyard. That word ba'ush is, is a word that means sour or unripe or rotten. So the Lord has gone in and he is carved out this beautiful land. He's planted the best vineyard and he's pulled the stones out and he's put watchtowers and he wanted to yield grapes and when he went up to check the grapes he found that they were sour and they were rotten. So verse three, now O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild, rotten grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. Tell you what, let's keep going. Verse six, I will make it a waste it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars, thorns shall grow up. I, I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice but he behold he found bloodshed. And for righteousness but behold an outcry." There's a story in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12 about David. And the story goes like this, you may be familiar with David. Uh, He had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba and then arranged it so that her husband would be killed in battle so that he could marry her and be guilt free. And he thought he was guilt free. He thought it was fine until the prophet Nathan came to him and said, Hey, listen, I've got a story for you about something that's been going on in the kingdom, David, and David's like, man, lay it on me. He said, there's a rich man who had tons of sheep, and there was a poor man who only had one sheep, and the rich man was gonna throw a party for his friends, and they all came in town, and the rich man, rather than slaughtering one of his sheep to serve his friends at his party, he went to the poor man, he took that sheep, he killed it, and he served it to his friends. What do you think about that, David? And David was fueled with anger and he said, that man must die. And the prophet reached out his little finger and said, behold, you are that man. And I share that story because I want you to start connecting these stories and these themes throughout scripture because what's happening here in Isaiah is the same thing that happened with the prophet and David. Isaiah is saying, behold, the Lord did all these things and the fruit that came up was rotten. So, so Judah, tell me, what should I do to my vineyard? And I can imagine the people of Judah who they kind of live in a, de- a desert and they were, um, uh, there's not much things that you can grow. You can grow things in the north, but in the south, the really only things you can grow is like olives and, and grapes for wine. And I can imagine the men of Judah who are familiar with growing grapes, they would have just kind of shouted, man, burn it down. Burn that thing to the ground and start over. And I can imagine the prophet leaning forward and saying, Judah, you are that vineyard. Because when God came to inspect the vineyard, he found stench and rot. Now, I want to get into the grapes and the stench and the rot because what Isaiah is about to do is he's about to pronounce a series of woes on Judah, and woes are, are not kind of like our English word, like woe, like woe, that's heavy, that's kind of crazy. That's not what woe is. Woe is a term of, um, of, of emotion, being overwhelmed with sorrow. And what Isaiah is about to do is he's about to walk down through a series of woes on Judah. And what I want to do is I want to read those woes like they're the grapes being found on this vineyard. So if God comes in to expect, inspect the grapes of Judah, and he's like, these are rotten. Well, what was rotten? What was the rotten grape? I want to read the woes as woe unto you for this. Woe that this grape is rotten. And here's how it's rotten. But before I get to that, And I I only wanna do this because I wanna reinforce the beauty of taking that next step and getting serious about your Bible study, okay? Because there are jewels in there that you miss if you're just only doing that Bible reading plan and running as fast as you can through it. I want us as a people to just treat this as beautiful. And that requires some slowing down and some beholding. And there's something here that um, th- there's a, a play on words that we kind of miss in English that's only found in Hebrew and the prophet does it for a purpose to drive home a point. And I want you to see it because it's, it's beautiful. So in, Ch- in verse seven, he says, for the vineyard of the Lord of the hosts is the house of Israel. So you are that vineyard. And the men of Judah are his ple- a pleasant planting. And then he says, <clears throat> he looked for justice but he found bloodshed and he looked for righteousness, but he found an outcry. Now the contrast are those are a little interesting. He looked for justice, what did he find? He found bloodshed and he's, he's looking for righteousness and he found outcry. Now that is powerful in and of itself, but if you read that with the Hebrew words for justice and bloodshed and righteousness and outcry, you see that the prophet is using a play on words to drive home a point that we miss. So let me read it this way. The word for justice is, in Hebrew, mishpat. So the Lord came into the vineyard and he's looking for mishpat, but he found mispa. He's looking for justice, but he found bloodshed. He found something that sounded kind of like it and from a distance looked like a good grape, but until he tasted it and got really close to it, he realized this is not, this isn't good. You look the same from a distance. You sound very similar, but upon closer inspection, you are the complete opposite of what I'm looking for in my people. I was looking for mishpah, but what I found was mispah. And righteousness, I was looking for tzedakah, but what I found was saaka I'm looking for this, and from a distance, baby, you look good. You look like a Christian who's got it together. But when I start asking you about your relationship with your wife, and I start asking you how much time you spend in the Word, and I ask you how much you pray, and how much time you spend with the Lord, and when I start asking you about the way that He's asking you to obey Him and rearrange your lives, you're, you're looking at me like a deer caught in the headlights. You don't know what any of that stuff means. Because on the outside, you've done all the things that everyone thinks you should do to look right but deep down, there's, there's emptiness. There's nothing to you. This is what the prophet's saying, and I want you to grasp the emotion of that. Because one of the prophet's jobs is to communicate not just the words of the Lord, but the passion and the emotion behind God's feelings on this matter. God is not a God who's just sitting in heaven saying, I'm very unpleased with you. No, he is worked up. I am very unpleased with you because I spent this time doing this and pulling rocks out and organizing people and calling them from foreign nations and blessing them and sending them down into slavery and pulling them back up by parting the Red Sea. And this is what you give me? You were supposed to be the kind of people that were a city on a hill. You were supposed to be the people among pagans that were, that were bearing my image to the entire world. And this is what you have. So I want you to wrap that imagery as we start going into the woes into your mind. So let's go to Isaiah chapter five, verse eight. Now we're gonna read these woes like they are the grapes. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. And, and you've stacked so many houses together and so much field and land together that you have made to dwell alone in the midst of your land. You have so much land around you. You don't even have people anymore. You're surrounded by just land, more and more land. Verse nine, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing. Surely many houses shall be desolate, large, and beautiful houses without inhabitant. Why? Because here's what the Lord is going to do as a response to the people stacking up earthly resources and taking advantage of people to do it. Ten acres of a vineyard shall yield one bath, and an omer of seed shall yield one ephah. Now you guys know how much that is, right? So that's, let's keep going. (laughs) 10 acres of a vineyard will yield 5.5 gallons of wine. That's it. 10 acres, all the land you've amassed is gonna produce five and a half gallons of wine. And you're gonna stockpile in Omer 33 gallons of seeds and I'm going to intervene so that it only produces three and a half gallons of grapes. What is the rotten grape? In verses eight through 10, it's the rotten grape of greed. Now, it's easy to read this and start injecting your own understanding into this and say, okay, well, this is about houses and land. So the takeaway here is I need need a smaller house or I need less land. that's, That's the wrong takeaway. The takeaway here is not the size of your house. The takeaway here is what that house does to you. The issue in the Bible is never stuff. The issue in the Bible is is always how you view stuff. Is the stuff in your hands a resource for God to use, or is the stuff in your hand the things that you worship? And when the stuff in your hands is the thing that you worship, then whatever you have is never enough. And from the point of Joshua bringing the people of Israel into the land, there was a commandment from God to split up the land among all of the tribes. And the command was, "I want you to take this this area, excuse me, this area of land, and give it to this tribe. And this area of land, and give it to this tribe. And as families die and their children raise up, I want you to pass that family that that land down to them." So family stay, or So land stays in the family. But what was happening in Israel was that the people who owned land started making deals with other people that owned land to get more land and ultimately resulted in enslaving their neighbors, expanding their own property and their own land, but enslaving their neighbors. And this desire never stopped. They continued to expand and expand and expand to the, to the point where they were not surrounded with the people of God. They were just surrounded with more and more land, convinced that it would produce more of a profit. But God intervened and he brought them low. And it doesn't matter how much land they have, they could never get, again, uh, get ahead. Let's go to Isaiah 5.11. It says, woe to those who who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or seek the work of his hands. What is the second rotten grape? It's the rotten grape of self-medication. They have amassed so much land and so much wine, they use that wine to dull their sorrow and their sadness and their emotions. They get drunk to dull their senses. They want to be happy and not think about the sad things. This is the reason why many people turn to addiction. This is why many people turn to to pills and to alcohol. It's because there's a hurt deep down that they don't want to feel anymore, a physical pain, an emotional pain, and they want to be dull to it. But here's the problem with self-medicating, the sorrow and the pain. You can't selectively dull anything. If you dull the pain, you also dull the joy. And you get to a place where eventually, this is what he says, You can't regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. You are medicating yourself so you don't feel the bad, but you're also robbing yourself of seeing the clear ways that he's working through that stuff to bring transformation. And so as we start stockpiling with greed, we also get to this place where we start getting high on our own supply, and we can't stop saying no, and we start blurring the lines, and we start building parties, and we start telling ourselves we don't have to experience that because we can just look at the work of our own hands, and we rob ourselves of seeing the work of the Lord's hands. Let's go to verse 13. He interjects in the woes to talk to us about what the Lord will do to respond to this. Therefore, my people who go into, uh, will go into exile for a lack of knowledge. That's interesting. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers, and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy and righteous. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and the nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. So in the middle of inspecting these rotten grapes, the Lord interjects and says, because of this, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, is I'm going to send you into exile. But it's not necessarily just because of what you've done or what you haven't done. I'm going to send you into exile because there is a lack of knowledge. And that's important. Because it teaches us that obedience doesn't start with just doing the right thing. Obedience doesn't start with just doing the thing God told us to do, because unless you know what God told you to do, you can't obey. So obedience always starts with knowledge. It was true in in, in, in the 700 BC with Judah, and it is true for us today. So what we have in the church today, is not an obedience problem. What we have is a biblical literacy problem. Lyle, will you cut the ACs if you can? I can't feel my fingers anymore. I'm there. For a solid 20 years in the church, there has been a movement to turn Sunday mornings into an an evangelistic outreach, which requires the, not the watering down in some cases, um, but the the, just kind of the the lowering of the bar so that non-believers are not offended by the stuff that's found in here. And we did it with good intentions because we want to save souls. But we understand that some of the things that he says are controversial. So to get them into the door, we've got to do things like maybe we've got to have good coffee, we've got to have good music, we can't have the message be a little, we got to have it right on time, 23 minutes, 35 minutes, come on, wrap it up, let's go. So what that's done is it's lent itself to a culture in churches where non-believers are dictating what happens when we gather as believers to worship the Lord. And what it's created is an entire generation of biblically illiterate folks who don't know what's in here because they've never been taught what's in here. Now, there there is a responsibility on the people of God. It's not like the only person who's ever talking about it uh, is the pastor. There is a responsibility of the people to be growing and studying. But if you look at the early church and why they gathered, there was this celebration and there was a studying of the apostles' teaching. And then those folks were sent out into the city to do the work of evangelism because there is far more work that can be done in all of the workplaces and all of the schools and all of the classrooms and every place you go on a daily basis to expand the kingdom than just the one hour that I'm given on Sunday morning in a culture of church where I've got to water things down and I can't go through two chapters of Isaiah just because there's not enough time. And what it's done is it's created a culture of church people who have who, who spent many years in church, but they just, can't, they just can't shake this feeling like, I'm not growing. I don't know. I don't, I'm not, I, I, I can't put words to it, but, but I, I'm, I, I, I don't know how to take the next step. I don't know how to obey. Why well, Isaiah is telling us. He's sending his people in exile for a lack of knowledge, and that knowledge leads to a lack of obedience. So biblical literacy is important. And I feel like that's one of the core components of what we're supposed to be doing at Red Hills. And I drive this into our pastoral candidates constantly. I'm convinced that one of the most important things that we will do here at this church is equip the saints for the work of the ministry by teaching you the Bible. So. It is a responsibility that weighs heavy on us because there's a lot of work to do. We're in the planning process of figuring out, okay, how do we do that? When your family comes to church and the dad who has not been serving the Lord gets convicted and saved and now has a responsibility in the eyes of God to raise his family in the ways of the Lord, but he doesn't know the ways of the Lord, how do we get him up to speed? How do we train him in the ways of the Old Testament and New Testament so that they're talking about it in their homes when they lie down and when they wake up and when they're sitting around the table? How do we change that culture? It's gonna require a lot of work, but it's work worth doing because obedience will result in it. And once obedience results in it, then the kingdom of God will start spreading and then you will spend more time when you go to bed thinking, what am I gonna do to advance the kingdom of God tomorrow? And when you wake up in the morning, that's what's gonna be on your mind. What am I gonna do to advance the kingdom of God today? And that's what I want. That's what I want for the men of this church, what I want for the women of this church, what I want for the young people in this church to be completely just saturated in the word of God because biblically that leads to obedience and obedience leads to God spreading his kingdom. And that's what I want in the city. So Isaiah five eighteen. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with a cart ropes. And who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. So woe to those who are walking around pulling sin in a cart and they're acting like a donkey or an ox being tied to that cart and they're pulling sin around town and they're the beast of burden for sin and they love serving sin and when the prophet speaks they say things like well I mean if the Lord wants to free me then go ahead and show himself why doesn't he show up just do something and then we'll judge on whether it's but I'm having a good time pulling the sin around town Woe to those, so what is the rotten grape there? It's the rotten grape of mockery. The Judah is pulling sin around like an ox tied to a cart. They love being a slave to sin and they're daring God to intervene. Verse 20, woe, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, I opened Matthew 26 with this verse Uh, in our Matthew message series in week 23, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But we talked about this rotten grape, the rotten grape that our culture is guilty of, of redefining truth. So the greed leads to self-medication, leads to mocking people, leads to redefining truth. Now good is evil, evil is now good. What rules the day? Not truth. Experience and feelings, conversations, new ideas that trump old ideas. The rotten grape of redefining truth. Verse 21, it says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. What is verse 21? The rotten grape of pride. See, redefining truth becomes a full time job. When everything is challenged and personal wisdom is elevated and celebrated, then you fill your lives with this pride that you have redefined God's structures in a much more economical and efficient way here on earth. And they begin to celebrate among themselves how clever they are in removing God and reordering His creation. I, I can. I can imagine that the people have even picked a month to celebrate this pride every year. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit their guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right what is the rotten grape here? The rotten grape of hero worship. Because what's happening is they're making celebrities out of people who support this redefined truth. They're actually paying influencers, valiant men is the way Isaiah would say it, to reinforce this structure in society. The nation doesn't worship God anymore, they worship the ones they pay to be heroes. Now, I can't help but see, and I referenced this already, but I can't help but see this as a progression. Wanting more leads to drunk excess. Drunk excess leads to mocking God and redefining truth. And then we start celebrating this new truth and anyone who promotes it and advances it becomes a hero. Does this sound familiar? This was written 700 BC and it's more applicable today than it ever has been. Because sin always does the same thing and the kingdom of darkness only has one play and they run it constantly. If I can get a people to not be happy with what God has given them, they've gotta have more, I've got them. Because what that leads to is they start getting drunk off of all the things that they accumulate in this world. And because they're drunk and they've accumulated so much, they start mocking God because their ways are successful and His ways weren't. And that forces them to take the next step of start redefining truth. We don't need His ways. And since this truth works and we all like it, let's pay people to advance it. Let's create entire social structures where people are used as pawns to advance ideas they don't even believe in, but like the people, and so they'll advance it anyway. Verse 24, what is God's response to this? Well, he doesn't tolerate this nonsense in Israel. He doesn't tolerate it in Judah, and he won't tolerate it among God's people today. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will go up like dust for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets now at this point we we have now jumped forward in history and Isaiah is looking at what God will do through the nations of Assyria and Babylon in pulling his people into exile. So we have now jumped forward in time and he's saying what God will do because of what's happening right now. Verse 26, he will raise a signal for nations far away and he will whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold quickly, speedily they will come. How wild is that? How does the Lord accomplish this, his purposes? He whistles for nations, like he's calling your dog in from the yard, and they come running. And when they show up, none of them are weary verse 27. Nobody stumbles, nobody slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp and their bows are bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind, and their roaring is like a lion, and the young lions they roar, they growl, and they seize their prey and they carry it off and none can rescue. And they will growl over it on the day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened and its clouds. So what is the result ultimately from the people of God redefining what they want from Him? It's exile. It's exile from, for Assyria. It's exile from Babylon they come in and they overtake Israel and Judah. But here's the thing, exile is not the end of the story. It doesn't end with exile, because as all these nations are overtaking and burning and cleansing and purifying, as God is using them to cleanse the land, land, everything is burned, but out of that ash, we're told a seed sprouts everything has been wrecked but out of that rubble a seed sprouts go to verse one in chapter six in the year that king uzziah died i saw the lord sitting upon a throne he was high he was lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple that word train means hem. so as isaiah is looking at he's describing the temple solomon's temple this huge massive temple with like 60 foot ceilings and the hem of his robe fills that temple. Well, how big is God? I don't know, I couldn't get past his hem. The thing filled the whole temple, it filled the whole room. Like how big is a God whose hem fills a building like this? I don't know, it doesn't matter, I couldn't get past it. Because what happened was above him were these seraphim and they had six wings With two he covered their faces and with two he covered their feet and with two he flew and one called to the other saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke and I said, woe is me. See, through the entire chapter five, Isaiah has been declaring this six woes to the people of God, but now he's declaring woe to himself because he realizes that he's counted among these people. He wasn't innocent. He says, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim flew to him and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. And now your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. If you want to do some historical study this week, go to 2 Chronicles 26 and read about the reign of Uzziah. He was a king who started very prosperous. He started the right way. Uh, he did things good for his people. God blessed him, and the blessings kept pouring out over Judah, but at some point he thought he saw fit to take the role as priest, and he stepped into the throne room and the temple, and he offered a sacrifice. Kings didn't do that. There was a clear line between kings and priests and prophets, and you didn't stand step over that line. And Uzziah did. And so what happened was the people kept looking at Uzziah as their king. This is the guy who produced fruitfulness in our nation. Things are great, not because of God, but because of Uzziah. And it wasn't until King Uzziah died that Isaiah was able to see the Lord. And that is so true for so many of us because we can't, we have a really hard time seeing the king, because we've got too many other kings sitting on his seat. And until those kings die, you can't clearly see the king. But the moment that you do, you start realizing that the issue is not out there with all of those people. The issue starts right here in this person. This is what needs to be cleansed. I need a coal from the altar to touch my lips. I need the blood of Jesus to wash me of my sins and cleanse me from my guilt and my unrighteousness. I need purification just as much as the people need purification. So I've got to have it, I need it, but not just for the point of me having no guilt, but so that now I am equipped and clean and purified so that I can now go speak God's message to the people unfiltered. Because if I go out with my dirty lips and start spreading his clean message, guess what comes out? Not his clean message anymore. It's filtered through my dirty lips and the representation as an image bearer to the world leaves everybody with a bad taste of God in their mouth. If that's who God is, I don't want to be part of it. So there is a requirement in order for God's message to be clear that our mouths are clean and our lives are transformed. Now I want you to go to verse eight. Now that the message has been proclaimed, now that Isaiah has spoken to the people, And he has had this vision of the Lord, and now his lips are clean. What takes place next? Verse 8 says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. And keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and they're blind, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. This, 9 and 10, most quoted Isaiah verse in the New Testament. And then I said, how long, O Lord? How long do I have to preach this message that's gonna make the people wanna run from you and not to you, that's gonna make their hearts hard? And he said, I want you to preach it until the cities lie waste without a single inhabitant, until houses are without people and the land is a desolate waste, until the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. I want you to preach it until a tenth remain in it. I want you to preach until it's all burned, like a terebinth or an oak. I want you to preach until everything is consumed and only stumps remain where it is felled. Because out of that stump, a holy seed will sprout. The holy seed is it's stump. So God decides that Judah will be judged and he asks, who's going to deliver this difficult message? There's a temptation in the heart of the prophet, there's a temptation in the heart of every pastor to preach soft words, to make people happy, to be conscious of things like oh, your time and your schedule and your personal experiences and to pull punches when it's time to bring the word of God. There is a temptation I, I feel it regularly. But what happens when soft words go forth is that it just makes soft people. And what God is saying through Isaiah is that what the people don't need is not a soft word. They need the truth. They need a hard word. They need something that pierces the very soul of who they are because they're living a lie and they're convincing them that they're fine when they're not. So I need you to preach a hard word, but I do know that as you preach this word, that as people hear it, the majority of them, they will not like it, they will run away, they'll go find another church, they won't care, their hearts will grow hard, and they'll say, see, I told you God was always like that. The hard word will drive some away. And Isaiah says, all right, I'll do that. I'll say the hard word that's going to dull the people and is going to harden their hearts. And and after hearing the truth, they're not going to want to hear anymore. I'll do that. But God, how long do I have to do that? And he says, I want you to do it until there's nothing left. I want you to keep preaching and preaching and burning and purifying until there's nothing left but a stump. Because until there's nothing left but a stump, I can't start building my kingdom because there's too much of you in the way. So the mission is to burn it all to the ground so that a seed will sprout. And we'll find out later in Isaiah 11 that that sprout comes from the stump of this guy named Jesse, who is the father of David. And out of the line of David comes this man named Jesus. And so Judah will be sent into exile and there will be nothing left of their former life. But when they, rec- when they eventually return and everything is burned to the ground, they're finally at a perfect place for the line of David to come forth and for Jesus to show up on the scene. And When he does, he quotes nine and 10 regularly. So here's where we're gonna finish. We have now a truckload of imagery, right? We've got a vineyard that needs purging, We've got a king that needs to die. We've got a mouth that needs cleansing. We've got a message of burning that needs purging. We've got a result of that burning and purging that leads to new life. Can you hear what the prophet is saying to us today through Isaiah five and six? This is the message of the gospel. This is the gospel. That there is a thing in our land, in the vineyard of our heart, that doesn't belong and it's producing rotten fruit. And the only way to fix it is to not just modify and put some more fertilizer on it so it's a better version of you. The only way to fix it is to burn everything to the ground and let him start new and make you transformed. That's how things are fixed. So there's rotten fruit in our vineyard and it's gotta go. There are false kings in our lives that have gotta die. There's a mouth that needs to be cleansed because we like talking profane things and it's difficult to preach hard, true words when our mouth is profane. And we ask ourselves, what do we preach and how long do we preach? We preach the gospel message that is a transforming, burning message and we do it until there's nothing left that everything in our life and in the lives of those around us have been consumed by the glory of Jesus. So, as we close today, I think it's only fitting for us to ask the Holy Spirit to ask us where we are today. Lord, show me with the clarity that I've never had before whether I'm producing good fruit or rotten grapes. Am I serving an earthly king or am I serving you? Am I faithful to preaching the gospel to those around me, am I going to bed every night thinking about what am I going to do to advance the kingdom tomorrow? You wake up thinking, what, am, where, what, what part of the kingdom does he want me? What am I doing for the Lord today? How am I going to work with dad today? Or are you thinking, oh, I'm worried about people, what they think about me, and so I can't say what I really believe and what I think. Are you rejoicing in this process of burning because it hurts so good? Or are you too afraid to lose something that you love? And on that thought of burning, this is the final thing I wanna leave with you. When You read through this and you see that God is telling the prophet, look, the way I'm gonna fix this is through burning, through cleansing, through ripping down the highest trees and the biggest monuments you've built. I'm gonna level all of them that sounds painful because that includes some of the things that you spent most of your life building. That might get thrown in the pile and burned. And that is scary. I get it. For some of you, it means you have to let go. You don't get control anymore. But let me, let me encourage you that burning on this side of the cross and this side of eternity feels way better than burning on the other side of eternity. Amen. Mark 8, 34-36. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the, to gain the whole world but lose his soul?